0: I think that that's, you know, if we were to use broad characterizations, I would say that the young people listening to this, this podcast should uh, think more heavily about renting when they're young and, and, you know, just building a solid financial base that way.
1: It's time for episode 17 of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. We're going to step a little outside our usual domain in this episode. Usually I do my best to stay focused on index investing and to avoid straying too far into other financial issues, but it's become harder and harder to ignore the impact of real estate on our lives. I'm hearing from more and more readers, for example, who are preoccupied with decisions about whether to buy a home or invest in a portfolio of ETFs. So to discuss this issue, I've invited Ben Rabideau onto the show. Ben runs North Cove Advisors, a market research firm that specializes in real estate and housing issues. And unlike so many commentators out there, Ben is hardly a cheerleader for home ownership, but neither is he a housing bear who advocates for lifelong renting. As he says near the beginning of our discussion, this is a nuanced issue and there is no blanket advice for everyone. Ben is also a fearless critic of the mortgage industry in Canada, including big banks and small lenders who might not be as rigorous with their lending practices as they should be. Now this is relevant for all index investors, whether you own a home or not, because as we'll see in the interview, the Canadian equity market is probably more exposed to real estate than many of us appreciate I hope you enjoy the interview. And with me in the studio today is Ben Rabideau, a real estate analyst and president of North Cove Advisors. Thanks for being here, Ben. My pleasure. All right. I thought I would begin the discussion by um, just talking about a common question that all of us are dealing with these days. And that is, you know, there are moms and dads out there everywhere who are still telling their kids, you know, you're not a true adult until you own your own home and you can't build equity as long as you're renting. Now, a few months ago, I was privileged to have uh, Professor Robert Schiller on the podcast and he shared his thoughts about home ownership as an investment. I think he would. I think it's fair to say he wouldn't necessarily agree with the assessment that you know, everybody needs to own a home to be financially successful. But where do you come down on that argument and what are your sort of broad thoughts on that issue?
0: Sure. Well, I think it's a it's very nuanced discussion. I think it's very difficult to give blanket advice on that particular topic. What I would say is um, – I think a lot of people have extrapolated the gains from the last couple decades uh, and have kind of expected those sort of gains to persist into the future. And to the extent that that actually happens, then of course, everyone should be buying real estate. I mean, if you're going to be getting you know, double-digit compounding returns on, on top of leverage, it's – yeah, it's a no-brainer. But the reality is that you – there are these periodic – uh, cycles in real estate. And when those hit, not only does the value of the home drop, but they often stay at suppressed levels for, for years or in some cases decades. And so, a great example is if we look in Toronto uh, in the late 80s, we had uh, a run up in prices, uh, a bit of a speculative bubble. It popped in kind of 89. Prices fell between 89 and 93 by about 20, 25 percent nominally. And then they basically flatline for the next decade. And so, like I said, it, it's a nuanced discussion. I certainly think that anyone who is of the view that they have to buy because they're just going to be you know, priced out of the market, they're just never going to get in. I, I think that's a really dangerous mentality that, that leads to all sorts of, I don't know, wrong behaviors that people tend to regret. There's no question that if you look at it from a purely financial perspective on a monthly cost basis, it's so much cheaper. To rent a property than to own it. Uh, I mean, it's it's not even close. And to the extent that you are a very um, disciplined saver, there's certainly a lot of opportunity there to gain equity from saving and investing wisely. That, that that differential in your monthly cost. Now, where it gets tricky is if you throw kids into the mix and you start, you know, y- y- you want. Uh, to stay in the same school district, and you don't want to have to worry about being evicted um, because your landlord's going to sell, and if you want a single-family dwelling, and there's just not a lot of those necessarily for rent. That, that gets much more nuanced, and I, I really feel for those you know, young families that are kind of stuck trying to make that decision. So there's nothing wrong. I'm not against owning a home by any means. I think oftentimes I'm portrayed as this like rabid housing bear, and I'm not at all. I own I own a home, and it's not. You know, it's uh, it's not something I'm against by any means, but I think that there's a lot of danger in the kind of thinking that you just articulated there where it's like, you know, you're young. The first thing you do when you move away from your parents' place is you buy a house. And that's just crazy thinking because the really what you want when you're young is you want to be liquid and you want to be mobile, right? Because if you want to pursue a job opportunity – Somewhere else, the last thing you want is to be tied to a liquid asset, and particularly one that's depreciated in value. That's much more difficult to sell, right? So, I think that that's you know, if we were to use broad characterizations, I would say that the young people listening to this this podcast should uh, think more heavily about renting when they're young, and and you know, just building a solid financial base that way. Uh, and you know, that conversation gets gets a lot more nuanced when you get into a different stage of life when kids are involved. At least that's been my experience. Hmm. Now, I mean, further to that, there
1: are a number of people that I've spoken to over the years, including clients who already own a home, mortgage-free, and they've got a lot of non-registered assets that are looking to invest. And they're starting to have the discussion of, you know, do I put this money into a portfolio of stock and bond ETFs or do I buy a second property for income? And To me, again, this question, it's just like the rent versus buy is not just a financial question. It's also a lifestyle question. The question of whether to invest in a portfolio of stocks and bonds versus buying an income property has a financial aspect, but it also kind of depends on who you are and how anxious you are to be a landlord
0: you want to talk to a little bit about that decision? No, I think that's a great point. It is very much um, a decision. I mean, there's a lot of time that goes into being an active landlord and your time is worth something, right? And the hassle is worth something. And look, it's been an extremely lucrative proposition for a lot of years. I think most people – you know, when you look at the leveraged returns, the fact that you can buy an income property with 20% down, which means you're magnifying your potential gains, that has um, – yeah, it's proven to be extremely lucrative and I think that's why a lot of people now are, are considering that. The issue that I would have with that is um, just bear in mind that leverage cuts both ways. As you know, if you're going to leverage a property 3 to 1, 4 to 1, 5 to 1 um, – That can magnify your gains, but it also in a down market or any sort of a a period of volatility, it magnifies those potential losses. Um, The other concern I would have is at this point in in the cycle, what we find is that the cap rates, the capitalization rates on on a lot of these properties, which is the easiest way to think about it is it's kind of like the dividend uh, on 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 a stock. So it's how much you're being paid relative to the value of the asset. Um, it's extremely low, and in, in many cases, we're seeing people buying these properties at a cap rate that's well below their funding costs, and that to me is an explicit acknowledgement that they're expecting substantial capital appreciation going forward, which probably uh, is an aggressive assumption. Right? I mean, it's um, you know, it's it. I think over the longer term, real estate prices are going to go up, but as we just discussed, there's lots of cycles along the way, and. To be honest, we're long overdue for a standard run-of-the-mill housing cycle in Canada. We really have not had one in almost 30 years. So to me, it feels like this is the the time to not be aggressively leveraging into uh, an income property with uh, such low cap rates in a rising interest rate environment. I think that the more attractive opportunities will – Will be in the future, but listen, my crystal ball is not great on this one, and I probably would have said that, you know, a couple years ago. And uh, property prices have run up since, but um, I think the point that I would make in all this is that leveraged, when you are late cycle, uh, which almost certainly we are in Canada, leverage can be very dangerous, and it can cut both ways. Now to stay
1: on that same topic of leverage, there's a, another uh, sort of popular strategy at least over the last few years is to borrow against one's home equity and use oh, it to goodness. invest in equities oh, right? Yeah. or in stocks. And I mean, if you look over the last, I don't know, five years or so, it was possible to get a home equity line of credit for 3% or sure. less in some cases. Equities returned 15% or more in some cases over some periods. It seems – and believe me, I've had emails from people who said, this is a no-brainer. Why isn't everyone doing it? Mm-hmm. So maybe you can speak to that question.
0: Well, well, first of all, let me just say I think it's a bad idea. Uh, almost categorically, I think there are – I mean, it's, it's certainly a bad idea if you're sort of nearing retirement and are looking at this as sort of a Hail Mary pass to make up for um, not having saved <laughs> previously. Uh, I think – If your time horizon is much, much longer, you can at least articulate some sort of a case for it. Um, I'm not a fan of it. I think that one of the things that kind of makes the strategy look more appealing on the surface is that because home equity lines of credit are primarily interest-only payments, it looks as if the carrying costs are extremely low, right? Because if they're not amortizing and so – you, know, you could borrow $100,000 and you're basically paying you know, a couple hundred bucks a month. I mean, it's, it's almost nothing to carry this. The issue is that those payments can be altered at any time by the lender. And we're actually increasingly seeing that. So we're actually seeing some of the big banks start to modify the terms on their home equity lines of credit and not just changing the prime rate, which will tend to fluctuate based on the Bank of Canada, but changing the discount to the prime rate. So you get hit from a couple of different, different ends. And so you know, I would say it, it's an, it looks attractive on the surface. Um, it's fraught with <laughs> all sorts of dangers. And I would say it's just a blanket rule, which I'm always hesitant to make blanket rules. But in general, I would say any sort of leveraged kind of carry trade, which is exactly what this is, is just not a great investment strategy for your standard investor.
1: Now, interest rates have been ticking up recently, but we're still, I think, in an environment where many people are frustrated with the relatively low returns on guaranteed and fixed income investments, GICs, government bonds, and things like this. And I still speak to a lot of investors who are attracted to investments that seem to be similar amounts of risk to those safe bonds, but promise much higher yields. One of those is mortgage investment corporations or mix as they're sometimes called. Um, certainly seen them advertise with six, seven, 8% yields looks a lot better than a couple of GICs. Um, can you describe what these investments are and what the risks might be relative to um, safer investments?
0: Sure. Uh, we have seen a proliferation of um, these mortgage investment schemes in, in Canada. That's probably harsh. Uh, they're not schemes. There's some very legitimate investment strategies with, out there related to uh, investing in mortgages in sort of an underserviced segment of the lending sphere. Um, and you know, there are some uh, You know, – I'm not opposed to – the idea of investing in some of these mortgage investment corporations. I think that there are times where if you can find a manager that is a prudent manager of that risk, the risk reward can actually be quite attractive. Particularly right now, given that B20, which is a new mortgage regulation, is actually pushing some well-qualified borrowers outside of that kind of traditional banking space. But having said that, I – I generally find myself just offended at the way that they're advertised (laughs) and I I think you're absolutely right. People don't appreciate the risk involved. These are very much um, equity-like investments. They are very volatile. They're uh, very levered to the economy and I think where it gets particularly risky is when people start pursuing a high interest rate, not understanding that uh, there are a lot of second mortgages in that portfolio. That are subordinated by another mortgage, and that's very problematic. I see people all the time that have invested in second mortgages, and you know when you talk to them, they say, oh, "Well, but it's safe; it's secured against the value of the land." And then you say to them, "Well, that's fine, but what happens if the person defaults on the first mortgage?" Right? You now have to make the payment on the first mortgage to control the power of sale process or the first mortgage is gonna control it and they're just gonna blow the property out to get their capital back and they don't care what sort of return you get. So yeah, you're and technically, yeah, you are secured on that title but the first mortgage doesn't care. And if you wanna have a say in those proceedings, you need to pay them out, which means that if you're gonna invest in second mortgages, you need deep pockets to pay out the first in the event that there's any sort of a sideways you know, or, or any sort of you know insolvencies in that portfolio. And people don't realize that. So there's there's a ton of risk there that people i think generally underappreciate but it's symptomatic just broadly of this kind of you know reach for yield meets this kind of mentality that like real estate never goes down and then overlaid on top of that is this kind of lax regulatory regime around mortgage investments in 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 well it's in canada broadly they're provincially regulated but i would say that in general the provincial regulators that are overseeing mortgage investments are very much asleep at the at the wheel you know at least relative to to their peers in the securities regulations industry so
1: yeah we were talking earlier about um... That most people in Canada believe that our sort of mortgage regime is rock solid, and I mean the default rate on mortgages in Canada is extremely low. Um, I think you'd agree that the system is better than the U.S. was during the time of its housing crisis. Um, but you know, there's a lot of lenders out there that seem to be doing some—let's just say—running with scissors because. Last year, for example, we saw um, Home Capital was a company, a mortgage lender that got into trouble. Uh, Laurentian Bank was another one that at least there were discussions that maybe these lenders weren't as rigorous with the application process as we had been led to believe. And in some bizarre quotes in the media, some of these organizations didn't really even seem to take it that seriously. They sort of acknowledged, well – you know, people applying for mortgages sometimes, uh, you know, exaggerate their income. But you know, it happens. It's not really as risky as it sounds. Are we on shaky ground in 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 this country in terms of are we due for some kind of housing? I don't want to maybe use the word crisis, but uh, some kind of shakeup because of these lax um, application processes.
0: Well, I think we're due for a shakeup for a number of reasons. Uh, I would say primarily due to the fact that household leverage is so high and if you start to kind of deconstruct the composition of the Canadian economy, we find that it's just massively tilted towards real estate and construction and all these kind of leveraged uh, parts of the economy that are really all housing derivative industries. But to get back to your your question, yeah, I think that um, the perception of the – Um, kind of regulatory regime in Canada versus the actual reality is is just way out of line. And and I've been saying this for – actually for years that I think we have a much bigger problem with um, mortgage fraud and just questionable underwriting practices than people are led to believe. Now, that's not to say that you're going to see a repeat of what we saw in the US or that you can even find some of the extreme examples that we saw in the US here in Canada. That's not the case, but I think that the perception that most people have around kind of the the soundness of the Canadian bank lending portfolios um, is probably a a bit erroneous. I think that actually we have some serious deficiencies in the way that we regulate and the way that the the lenders underwrite these mortgages in Canada. I don't want to make predictions around where this goes or what the potential fallout could be, but just getting back to what we talked about, these are – yeah, housing is cyclical, credit performance is cyclical, the economy is cyclical, but yet we've been on this you know, really 20-year upswing with the exception of 08, 09, which is really a blip in the context of most normal kind of downturns. Um, and so we are due for a correction and, and the fallout from that uh, is often quite painful. And when we look at the TSX, You're talking almost a quarter of the market cap is is in financials and there are some – there's a lot of leverage there back to kind of housing and mortgages and uh, to the extent that there's a problem nationally in in credit quality, there's no question that it affects the banks. In my previous podcast, I answered a question from a reader who was
1: asking about whether it made sense to add a specific allocation to real estate investment trusts or REITs in a diversified portfolio. my advice was that it wasn't necessary but you could make a good argument for it and one of the arguments for it is that real estate in many ways appears to be underrepresented in the uh, broad market stock indexes right so if you look at the S&P TSX composite index only about 3% of it or so is designated as real estate but you know, as you were mentioning, the financials or the you know the bank's presence in that index is enormous, and an enormous part of the bank's business is real estate lending. And so, the impact of a real estate downturn in Canada is going to be affected a lot to a much greater extent than just in reits and house prices and things like that. So, can you talk a little bit about how um, any kind of shock in the real estate market might affect? the, you know, broad market indexes as well, if if in Canada and, and, you know, potentially beyond?
0: Sure. Well, first it's important to understand how credit losses occur um, within the financial system or or more specifically when they don't occur, right? Because that's really, um, you know, if banks are going to get in trouble or if share prices are going to be revalued significantly, it's really going to be a function of credit losses, right? And, the one thing people have to understand is that when house prices are going up, um, it's almost impossible to have delinquencies in any size, and which kind of makes sense, right? If you are, you know, if, if you're in trouble on your mortgage, but you have a ton of equity, well, you can always sell and pocket the equity and walk away and rent or, or what, in practice, what most people do is you would then consolidate your high interest debt back into your mortgage. You might pull out some equity and it kind of keeps you afloat for a while. And so the point is that, you, you really – people tend to think that mortgage arrears are like a leading indicator and are indicative of credit quality, but in fact, they're a lagging indicator. And what we generally find in most advanced economies is that when housing rolls over, even without a shock to the economy, you start to see that delinquencies start to normalize or they start to rise simply because you've eliminated an option available to these distressed borrowers, right? which is either sell their house or consolidate the debt and refinance. Uh, and so um, if we, in fact, do see a housing cycle in Canada, almost certainly you're going to see um, credit performance deteriorate quite, quite sharply. And, you know, it will affect the share price of, of all of the financials, uh, full stop. And I think underappreciated in all of that is that it affects consumption in Canada through, through a number of channels. Well, a couple in particular, but one is kind of what we might call wealth-effect spending. So people just generally are more inclined to spend when they feel wealthier. Um, but then there's also kind of the capacity to borrow, which is which is affected as well. So if prices are not rising, if they're flat or falling, then the borrower cannot access additional housing equity. They can't they can't consolidate. They can't refinance their mortgage. They can't pull a HELOC out. So it gets much harder to, for example, buy a boat or take a vacation or you know, renovate your house. And so you, you end up with this big drag on, on consumption. Where that could show up is in some of the big retailers that you know, tilt more towards kind of discretionary spending, right? And so it it has all, a housing downturn um, without question – has major implications for an economy. If we look in Canada, for example, over the last three years, we find that residential investment, which is kind of new housing construction and renovation and consumption uh, has been consistently about 90% of real GDP growth. Uh, And so that has been the driver of the Canadian economy. And if that were to change, then it does all sorts of ramifications, right? So I, I think that the TSX generally, you know, if if there's a, a housing downturn, you want to be. You know, I know this isn't like in your wheelhouse because you're more of the passive guy, but you know, if I was thinking about it tactically, you'd want to be like underweight financials, underweight, uh, you know, some of the more consumer, um, consumption-oriented, you know, names, and you'd probably want to be more invested in the energies and the materials and that sort of stuff. So even if you're not making tactical moves like
1: that though, uh, there must be ways for the average investor to kind of protect himself or herself from um, the risks of something like this. And I'm not talking about the risks in the sense that I think it's going to happen in the next six months so I'm going to rejig my portfolio. I'm thinking more like if you are trying to get your investments and your financial house in order and you recognize that um, a significant – Housing downturn would have ramifications that would, you know, trickle through the whole economy. It seems to me like you know the way to handle it is just to do normally responsible things, like pay off your debt, um, and it's crazy talking. Uh, yeah, man. that's cr- <laughs> have a have a diversified portfolio that sure. isn't just Canadian banks and things like this. Yeah. right. So, I mean, what's what's just the sort of basic advice for people who are again not not expecting this imminently, but just. Re- understanding that it is always going to be a possibility how do we get ourselves prepared for that
0: sure well I think the right way to think about it is for the average Canadian they have enormous exposure already to the housing market both through and for most families that they the their home is their largest asset and then if you deconstruct their equity Holdings it's usually like Canadian banks would be you know very high on the holding list or even if they're a, a passive investor as we talked about they've got tremendous exposure just through kind of the the composition of the the TSX. Uh, So knowing that, I would say that you want to be extremely hesitant about then further increasing your exposure to the real estate market. So going back to one of your earlier questions, for the average person owning multiple rental properties or leveraging into mortgage investments um, when you already have tremendous exposure is compounding and concentrating your risk. Uh, which is not necessarily, you know, a, a particularly prudent thing to do. So I'm I'm with you for the average Canadian, you know, it probably makes a lot of sense to just um, do the kind of smart, basic things. Um, get your spending under control, pay off your mortgage, you know, invest, uh, save your money, invest regularly. Don't go chasing um, the trends. Don't, don't go chasing fads. Don't go leveraging into, you know, pre-construction condos and – you know, this is such uh, boring advice. I, it definitely. is boring advice, but you know, it, where it pays off is 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 when there is that inevitable cycle, which, you know, people just need to be cognizant that that is a normal p- – I mean, for certain, if you, your listeners have a 20-year time horizon, we're going to see a housing downturn. It's almost – you know, it's it's almost baked into the cake. That's just the way these things go and they can be quite painful and, you know, we're probably long overdue for – for, for something that looks like a housing downturn. So, yeah, this is not the time to be, you know, increasing your exposure. Yeah.
1: Now, I mean, um, housing downturns are, are painful. So are equity downturns. We have not really seen either in the last five to seven years. We haven't really had anything of that level of pain since 08, 09. Um, and I wonder if people have started to underestimate the risks of both of these asset classes. Um, I mean, certainly if we want to stick to real estate, there is this sense that real estate is not very volatile. You know, People will say, uh, I bought a house and it's not a volatile asset. Whereas I look at my stock portfolio and it goes up and down every hour. Of course, house prices are not <laughs> priced every day or every right. minute. If they were, Do you sense that people would would see them for the sort of more cyclical and volatile asset class that that it really is?
0: Well, that's a great question. I I mean, I think there's probably some merit to the view that housing generally is less volatile uh, than equities, but you're right. Most people don't get a daily read on the value of their house, right? They don't have multiple buyers and an obvious bid-ask spread on the house, right? So – For most people, they just don't think about it, right? And so for them, it feels like it's much less volatile. But, you know, it can be very volatile. I'll give you an example. I had some clients uh, in town and we went up to um, a development in kind of the Richmond Hill Markham area. Uh, And without giving too many details, uh, it's very kind of high-end new development. And um, we did a bit of background research on this and it turns out – that units, uh, or I should say houses in this new development are selling today for about 40% less than they were selling for a year ago. So that's 40% less. Now, these are very high-end, you know, illiquid houses, but if you wanted to find a bidder, You'd be pricing 40% less. That's a big, that's a big drop, right? And so you know, housing can be volatile, right? Especially if you're in a less liquid segment of the market. So a particularly expensive home or a you know, a, a, a micro condo or something that just doesn't trade uh, in any sort of in any sort of volume. Um, It can be, it certainly can be, but you're right. For most people, uh, they just don't get a read through on that. And so they don't, they don't perceive it as being a volatile asset class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you look at it, something like a rental
1: property, um, there, there may be actual uh, value in seeing things like that way. For example, if you owned a condo, you're earning a regular rental income from it. um, And, you know, prices fall 20%. It may not bother you that much. I always laugh. People don't panic sell real estate when it goes down the way they panic sell stocks. I'm not quite sure why that is. It's almost the opposite in the sense that when real estate falls in value, people will say, well, I still have my house or I still have my property. It's still earning an income. I'm going to hang on to it, which is Great investment behavior. People don't always apply that same logic to stocks, even though they expect both of them to deliver an income and go up over the long term. For some reason, they view them as fundamentally different in that aspect.
0: Right. We do see that a lot as well. I I think there's uh, a view out there that because you can touch it, you can you know you can see the bricks and mortar, you can see the land. The land's not going to go anywhere, whereas you know, shares in Enron, right? <laughs> can just yeah. disappear, right? <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and the company can just go can just go bankrupt. Now, you know, an, an entire index can't really just, you know, disappear and the value be gone because you're it's an ownership stake in a company. And so you and I recognize that, yeah, ownership stakes in companies um, across the economy, I mean, you'd need just such a, <laughs> for those to really go to zero as an index would be, I mean, it's unthinkable, right? Um uh, so I mean I understand where that perception comes from, but I, I I do you know I agree you see that a lot more people seem to be more uh, more patient to their credit, more patient with their real estate holdings and don't panic sell. And uh, it's an interesting kind of behavioral quirk that we see because as you probably see in your practice, people are prone to sell their equity holdings at really the worst possible time. Right. Mm-hmm. So you know one of your servers I'm sure, is just you know, holding hands through the volatile periods, right? And just making sure people don't make those big, big – and there's a lot of value in that.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in the end, successful investing is kind of about understanding what type of investor you are building a portfolio that is a good fit with you, that that makes you comfortable. And for some people, that's stocks and bonds and ETFs. And for other people, it's tangible property. And it's just uh, – both of those are potentially, you know um, – Wealth-building assets. Sure. It's just a matter of which one you're more likely to hold on to and maintain over the long yep. term. Yep.
0: Yeah, both will make money over the long term, and I'm not against. it. I want to be clear. I'm rethinking some of my. You know, I don't want to come across to your listeners like I'm like anti-real estate. I think there's a place for it in people's portfolio. I just think, you know, for the average borrower or the average the average uh, listener uh, to leverage further into real estate you know, is probably the last thing they need from a diversification perspective because most people have tremendous exposure to it, right? This is a good time to, you know, just remind your listeners that, you know, you need a good balance in your portfolio. You know, make sure you have some cash, some short-term, you know, if if you're going to be invested in bonds, make sure they're short-term, they're not super volatile with backup interest rates because everything globally has a lot of, uh, you know, exposure to, to the rates regime right now.
1: Yeah. In the end, it always comes down to diversification, low cost, and long-term discipline. Right. right. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. I appreciate you joining My pleasure. us. It is time once again for an installment of Bad Investment Advice, where we do our best to divert your attention from the nonsense in the financial media. This time around i was inspired by a recent article in the globe and mail called hedge fund etfs put sophisticated strategies in reach the article describes several etfs in both canada and the us that rather than simply tracking an index like traditional etfs try to emulate the investment strategies used by hedge funds the article describes hedge funds as the playground of well-heeled and institutional investors and explains that etfs offer the chance for anyone to get access to this playground Now, it's actually quite a well-balanced article, and both of the sources quoted in the piece do offer a number of caveats about these ETFs. But I object to the whole premise of presenting hedge funds as if they were some luxury that we should all aspire to, like flying business class or owning a Rolex. Let's start with a quick review of what a hedge fund is. The textbooks describe them as lightly regulated pools of capital, though others have called them more colorfully mutual funds on steroids. And that's because hedge funds aren't required to follow the same rules. They can use leverage, they can short stocks, they can take very concentrated positions, all strategies that are off-limits to traditional mutual funds. And because of this, they're generally available only to so-called accredited investors, that is, those with a high net worth or high income, or those who are willing to commit a large initial investment. In this sense, they are indeed the playground of the rich, and these wealthy investors must be willing to pay very high fees. The traditional fee structure for hedge funds is called 2 and 20, which means a management fee of 2% annually plus 20% of the excess return above a given benchmark. Now thanks to movies like The Big Short and TV shows like Billions, hedge funds have acquired a cachet, like so many other things we associate with wealth and power. They tend to hire scary smart people called quants and make trades using algorithms. And I have to confess, I think it's all very entertaining. I mean, I'm the first to admit, I would probably not watch a Showtime series that offered a behind the scenes look at index funds. But just because they're exclusive and exciting and sophisticated, that doesn't mean that hedge funds actually deliver on their promise of outsized returns or even risk reduction. Now there's no question that a small number of hedge funds have been absolutely stellar performers. Renaissance Technologies is probably the most famous of these, Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Associates is another one, and many more hedge funds have done extremely well. However, most of them have been a huge disappointment for their investors. Now the actual data are hard to come by because hedge funds are notoriously secretive and they're not held to the same reporting standards as mutual funds. But here are a few numbers to consider. The Economist reported in late 2012 that over the previous decade, the HFRX Global Hedge Fund Index saw a cumulative return of just 17%, compared with over 90% for a balanced portfolio of 60% U.S. stocks and 40% global bonds. Now, I should also note that in this report, The Economist refers to that index benchmark as a, quote, simple-minded investment portfolio. Now, I think that might have been meant with irony, but it is interesting that no one ever describes an index portfolio as sophisticated, even when it repeatedly trounces the performance of funds run by an army of PhDs. So why, if the performance of the average hedge fund is so lousy, do wealthy investors continue to embrace them? And why are smaller investors so eager to piggyback on their strategies using ETFs? Warren Buffett offers some commentary about this in a 2017 letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Now, you will recall that Buffett offered back in 2005 to wager half a million dollars with anyone who thought they could choose a portfolio of hedge funds that would beat the S&P 500 over 10 years. He finally got someone to take that bet in 2008, and the S&P 500 went on to annihilate the hedge fund portfolio, which included more than 100 individual managers. Now, Buffett didn't gloat about the win, but he did try to explain the enduring appeal of these wealth-destroying investments. Quote, The wealthy are accustomed to feeling that it is their lot in life to get the best food, schooling, entertainment, housing, plastic surgery, sports ticket, you name it. Their money, they feel, should buy them something superior compared to what the masses receive. In many aspects of life, indeed, wealth does command top-grade products or services. For that reason, the financial elites, wealthy individuals, pension funds, college endowments, and the like, have great trouble meekly signing up for a financial product or service that is available as well to people investing only a few thousand dollars. Close quote. Professor Mayer Statman, a specialist in behavioral finance, also reflected on this idea in his book, What Investors Really Want. He argues that the appeal of hedge funds for wealthy people is not just about the desire for high returns. The expressive benefits of hedge funds include status and sophistication, he writes, using that word again, and their emotional benefits include pride and respect. Hedge funds open their doors only to the rich, making it easy for investors to brag about their riches without appearing to brag, close quote. It doesn't even seem to matter that most hedge funds end up being dismal performers. Professor Statman goes on to say that, quote, hedge funds elevate status even when they detract from wealth. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in choosing investments that will confer elite status on me. I only care about finding the strategy that will allow me to achieve the best long-term results, regardless of how boring and simple-minded they might appear to others. As for all those ETFs that promise to bring hedge fund strategies to the masses, I'm sure they'll appeal to some investors, and I'm sure some will go on to deliver market-beating performance, at least over some periods. But portraying these funds as sophisticated is just more
0: bad investment advice.
1: And let's jump into a segment of Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from podcast listeners and blog readers. Joining me in the studio, as always, is Amanda Diel. Amanda, what is our question this time around?
0: Our question this time comes from Mark in Halifax, who writes, I'm a well-disciplined 25-year-old couch potato investor, but I keep 10% of my savings as money I can play with to satisfy the excitement itch. A friend told me about a small tech company that sounds interesting, but I've never touched penny stocks before do you think this company could be a diamond in the rough, or should I put my play money in larger stocks?
1: Okay, thanks for the question. A lot of otherwise disciplined investors seem to enjoy setting aside a portion of their savings for play money, which usually means buying individual stocks in addition to holding a more diversified portfolio. I understand the need to spice up your life, and God knows index investing is never going to provide that, but in my experience, people who look for excitement by picking stocks can quickly undermine their long-term investment strategy. Remember when you were a kid and your mom told you not to scratch your mosquito bites because it would just make things worse? Well, I think it's the same with the excitement itch, as Mark puts it. I actually used to encourage people to set aside a little money for stock picking if they found it fun, but in my old age I've begun to argue against the idea of having a play money account in the first place. Let's start by considering the idea of allocating a little money to highly speculative investments, such as penny stocks, like Mark mentions in his question. If you're not familiar with the term, a penny stock is a share in a company too small to be listed on a major stock exchange. By definition, these companies have very low share prices, traditionally less than a dollar. So you can see how volatile they can be. If you buy a stock at 10 cents a share and it goes up just a penny, well, you've earned a 10% return. If the company really takes off, let's say it gets acquired by a much larger company, it might rise to a dollar. And then you've hit a 10 bagger, which is just not something that's ever going to happen with a blue chip dividend stock. Now, of course, many penny stocks will go to zero in short order, but I think everybody understands that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here talking about the risks of investing in tiny companies, because I think the real risk here, at least in my view, isn't that you'll fail miserably as a stock picker. It's that you will enjoy some initial success. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say Mark decides to buy a thousand shares in a tech company that he's considering, and it does turn out to be that diamond in the rough, one of a tiny number of penny stocks that actually turns out to be a huge winner. Now, it's possible that he might just consider himself incredibly lucky, like someone who hit the jackpot on a slot machine, but most people don't do that. Humans have a tendency to ascribe their failures to bad luck, But when they succeed, they credit their superior skills. So it seems just as likely that Mark would convince himself that he was pretty smart in identifying this company's potential and he was simply rewarded for that insight. And since it paid off so handsomely, maybe these penny stocks might deserve more than the 10% of his savings that Mark is currently devoting to it. Maybe he should be putting in 20% into this little side gig. Even if he never increases the proportion of his portfolio devoted to play money though, it will almost certainly occupy far more than 10% of the time and mental energy that he devotes to his finances. Even if we can agree that investors should stay far away from penny stocks, for some people, play money is not all that playful. I know many investors who combine indexing with stock picking in a much less speculative way. Maybe they hold some Canadian bank stocks for the dividends or they own some giant growth stocks like Apple or Amazon. Now, these companies aren't going to go to zero anytime soon, nor are they going to deliver 10x returns. So the possible outcomes are a lot less extreme than they would be for penny stocks. But I would actually argue that the behavioral risks here can be even greater. And that's because if these stocks outperform your boring index funds, the stories that investors will tell themselves can be even more compelling. You know, I think anyone who has had great success with speculative investments will acknowledge that a lot of it was just dumb luck. But that's not the case with investors who beat the index by a few percentage points with large cap stocks. These investors are more likely to weave narratives about how it really wasn't so hard to predict that this bank was a great choice because of its strong business model and its reliable dividend history, or that this tech company was obviously poised for a big boost from its new product. I've certainly heard this rationalization from investors who had early success with stock picking. When you make a couple of good calls, and it really does seem very easy. And at some point, these investors will probably ask themselves, why am I wasting my time with index funds at all. There's another danger here. Even if you've designated your stock picks as play money, it's likely that you'll keep a close eye on the fortunes of those companies, and that means you'll probably spend more time reading the financial news, with its relentless focus on the short term, its limitless capacity for inventing explanations for every random market move, and the implication that smart investors are those who act on this news. This is really one of the most reliable ways to get distracted from what's really important in investing. Because the thing is, investing shouldn't be exciting. The Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Samuelson famously said, Investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Look, maybe Vegas isn't for you and maybe you'll feel the urge to buy more than 800 bucks worth of excitement, but just pick another activity that will allow you to scratch that itch. Try skydiving or maybe yoga. Just make sure it's an activity that you will never confuse with investing. So my advice to people like Mark is to just close the Play Money account. If you're a couch potato investor, one of the biggest obstacles you're going to face is the nagging feeling that there's something better out there. The kids these days call it FOMO, fear of missing out. Maybe it's speculative investments that offer instant gratification, or maybe it's the intellectual challenge of building a market-beating portfolio of individual stocks or specialty ETFs. Either way, the most successful index investors are those who have let go of these ideas and just decided to embrace the boredom and to find their excitement elsewhere.
0: Thank you, Dan. If you've got an investing question that you'd like Dan to answer on the podcast, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. And if it has broad appeal, you may hear it on a future installment of Ask the Spud.
1: And we've reached the end of this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato podcast. Thanks as always to Nick Jaworski, our producer, and to Hunter McKinnon at Truly Social for keeping everything on track. Speak to you again soon.